Father, I do pray that as we come to your word now, you would draw us close to you, that we would hear very clearly the heartbeat of God, which is that his children would know him. And where we are wayward or rebellious or our ears are just selective in hearing and we turn away from you, would you, would you break through that this morning, I pray, and help us to truly hear what it is you're saying as you beckon us to yourself through Jesus. So I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. Thank you very much for, to Dee and Kate and Johnny for leading us this morning. Um, if you've still got your Bible or if you've closed it, open it up. If you'd find that Hebrews chapter 10, uh, to page 1208, 1208 would be absolutely fantastic. It's a huge delight to me and a wonderful realisation. I remember when I first, it first dawned on me, uh, this was true of God, uh, that the Bible uh, is, doesn't fall into the trap of having its head so in heaven that its feet are not on the ground. The Bible doesn't do that. I know some Christians sometimes we think are a bit like that. They're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. But the Bible is never like that. I love the fact that the Bible never turns a blind eye to the realities of our life. It doesn't whistle in the dark as if everything is okay. It doesn't uh, put rose-tinted glasses on when it looks at the trauma and reality and difficulty as well as the joys and delights and laughter that constitutes our, our life. And that's why that therefore is so significant for us, as I said just before I read the passage, because it starts to tell us we're moving from just being educated about God, which is very important, to actually working out what it, what it means in our life, from that education to application to not just what is he telling us and teaching us, but who is he making us and how is he changing us. If you look at the passage with me just for a moment, I want to just show you the structure. I just want to show you how it's put together because it's going to really help us to see what God is saying. Twice there's a little phrase at the beginning which says, since we have, and then three times following there's the phrase, let us, let us, let us. See if you can spot it if you've got a Bible in front of you. The first, since we have, is in sentence 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. The second since we have in sentence 21. And since we have such a great high priest. Two enormous motivators. Since we have gifts that God has given us. Since we have these two things. And then three responses. Let us, sentence 22. Let us draw near to God. Since we have, now let us draw near to God. Uh, The second letter, sentence 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope. Since we have, let us hold on tight. And the third one, sentence 24, and let us consider how to spur one another on. Since we have, let us work out how to encourage and spur one another on. That literally is the language of a rider on a horse with those metal spikes giving a kick into the ribs. It's not gentle and kind as we spur each other on. It's, oh, yeah, okay, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. So let's unpack it. Let's take the two since we, and then we'll take the three let us and see what it's saying. The since we's are remarkable. They're of such magnitude. They're summaries in a sense. Such magnitude. The first one in sentences 19 to 20 is that there's now no restrictions to accessing God. There's no restrictions left to access God. The pathway is clear. Every roadblock has been demolished. Every landmine diffused, and it is access for anybody. 
Look at sentences 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. Now, there's a lot of language that won't be familiar to us here, isn't there? It's temple language. Do you remember I said these were Jewish people? Their life was saturated in the temple, the central building that dominated their town and their psyche. And most of this language, the most holy place, the the blood of, the curtain, the high priest, the house of God, most of this language is temple language, less familiar to us, isn't it? Um, Let me just pick up on a couple of those less familiar ideas and help us to understand it. We won't worry about the others this morning. The temple was designed to limit access to God. That was the way that the temple, the Jewish temple, was designed. It was like a Fort Knox, more more a castle or a fortress than actually a, a city mall, a shopping mall that anyone could walk through. It was closed off. There was various concentric defenses, if you like, which filtered people out. And right at the heart of it was a place called the Most Holies of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. You see it mentioned in sentence 19. That was the place that God was thought to dwell. Well, that was practically impenetrable. Practically no one could get in there. One person on one day of the year could enter, and that was it. And the last defense and the greatest defense to stop anyone entering that that place where God dwelt, and actually being in God's presence, and actually knowing God closely and intimately, the last defense was a curtain. Did you see that mentioned here in sentence 20? Uh, Through the curtain. Well, no one ever went through the curtain. The curtain was about a whole hand span wide, its width. And it hung from the very top to the very bottom, weighed an absolute ton. No one could get through it. But the reality is, when Jesus dies, that curtain, literally and spiritually, falls to the ground. And suddenly, anyone could stumble into God's presence. Suddenly, the great barrier is removed. We've just got one cross-reference this morning, and I'd like to ask you to go to, if you would, um, keep your finger in Hebrews if you've got a Bible, and turn with me to Mark, Mark chapter 15. So this is on page 1022. Of course, I'll read it if you haven't got a Bible, but if you have, keep your finger in Hebrews, because we will go back there. We're just going to turn to one other place in the Bible, and it's here in Mark chapter 15, 1022, page 1022, actually 1023. 1,023. Bottom left-hand column. It records Jesus dying. It records Jesus dying. Look at sentence 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathes his last. Jesus dies. Now look at sentence 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you see that? What happens between sentence 37, Jesus dying his last breath on a hillside called Golgotha, literally means the hill of the skull. You can still Google it today, and the caves on its hillside look like a skull face. That's Golgotha, the hill of the skull. Jesus dies, and as he breathes his last breath, the camera angle changes. And we're taken about a mile and a half into the center of the city of Jerusalem to the temple. And at the same moment that Jesus dies, his last breath, his body destroyed and slaughtered in our place for our sin and rebellion and failure and error, the great impenetrable curtain that stopped anyone ever knowing God rips in two. 
any little child could walk in unexpectedly. All and sundry suddenly can enter God's presence. And did you notice how it ripped? If you're in Mark, just have a close look. It doesn't quite make sense if you've ever ripped a curtain before. How does it rip? Where from? From the top to the bottom. Now, I remember when I was a little lad charging around the living room. We weren't allowed in the living room when I was a little boy. We had our own kind of shed, no, playroom, a playroom. That's where the dog and children were kept. And then the living room was only for people who, you know, could wipe their feet and things like that. Yeah? And me and my brother had gone in there secretly and we were charging around and I tripped on this lamp. And as I fell and just grabbed whatever I could, I grabbed the big velvet curtains that blocked off the French doors. And as I fell, I grabbed halfway down and kind of went like that and it just ripped from where? The bottom up. Because that's how you rip a curtain, isn't it? I was in all sorts of trouble at that moment, I can tell you, yeah? We tried to blame the dog. It didn't work, yeah? yeah? That's why we've got a dog now. I still do that. It was the dog, Hannah. It was the dog. Yeah. But here the curtain breaks from the tears from the top to the bottom. It, it's God who does it. It's God who tears his own curtain. Because with Jesus dead, all sin paid for, anyone now can stumble in to God's presence. See, just as an aside, it's really important that we just understand the heart of the Christian faith. How do you spell it? How do you spell it? D-O-N-E. Done. Jesus has done it all. It's not spelt D-O, what we must do, but done. He has done it all. So the first since we, the first great world-reshaping reality is there's no restrictions anymore to access God. That's what we've learned over the past few months, that the curtain is torn and anyone can go into God's presence, anyone can know him, anyone can experience him, anyone can know him as father and close one and kind one. The second since we is in sentence 21. Do you see it there? And since we... So first, we've got access to God. And then secondly, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. It's talking about Jesus, this new great and ultimate and final last uh, high priest. This means there's no limitations to knowing God. Now, the access to God has been open. The curtain has gone. But now our ability to know God actually is open to everybody as well. There's no limitations to that relationship. The high priest in their thinking, remember they were Hebrews, they were Jewish, the high priest was the unique one who could mediate between God and people and people and God. And if you wanted to know God, you had to come to that middle management. That's what the high priests were, the middle management. If you wanted to speak to the CEO, you had to come to the middle management of the priest. But Jesus is the last, final, and full high priest. The middle management, the mediator, is no longer necessary. We can all know God personally. Uh, just have a brain break for a moment, and let me see if I can illustrate it like this. On Tuesday this week, just gone, I was in a meeting which included Lynn Green. Now, Lynn Green is the General Secretary of the Baptist Union of Great Britain. We belong to the Baptist Union of Great Britain as a church. It's about 2,000. 2,013 churches across England and Wales, predominantly, that belong to the Baptist Union of Great Britain. And, and she sits at the top of the pile. She's our General Secretary. Lovely, lovely woman. Fantastic lady. She was here for this thing that we were doing, and she was speaking. And as she spoke, she said that when she was training 
um, which I guess, I mean, you've got to be careful, but she's not in the room, so I'm going to risk it. I guess she's mid-50s, you know. Um, we can dub that out in case she listens back on the recording or something. But um, she was saying when she trained in her early 20s, she, the, being a minister was her first job. She trained in her early 20s. When she was a trainee, she would never, ever have dreamed of being able to speak to the general secretary. It was just beyond her wildest imaginations. Maybe she could speak to her senior pastor, perhaps maybe a regional minister, but there's no way she could ever get access to the general secretary. But she was saying everything has so changed with social media now that she could be sitting at home and having dinner and all of a sudden her messenger on her phone will speak and some six months into first year college training whippersnapper fresh behind the ears is asking the general secretary's advice. Yeah? Because that's what social media has done, hasn't it? It's just totally removed the need for mediation. That's what media means, isn't it? To mediate something. Social media has removed the need. You can speak to the top authority wherever you are in the structure. So it is with Jesus, you see. He is the perfect high priest. All the middle management is cleared out and gone. So now there's no limitations to knowing God. Now just pause and get your wits around us, okay? That's the two massive summaries of what Jesus has done. He's the place and the person, put very simply. He's the new temple, the place where God dwells. You come to Jesus, you come to God. And he's the new person. You come to Jesus and you come to God. The place and the person, both found in Jesus, available and accessible to everyone. So what does that mean for us? Let's have a look at the three letters. And this is where the rubber hits the road, okay? The first letters is it means we can draw close to God. Look at sentence 22, would you please? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, again, the language is very temple and very Jewish and very ancient. But did you see how it began? Let us draw near to God with what? Fear and trepidation? With anxiety and uncertainty? With concern that he won't accept us? It doesn't say any of that, does it? It says, now because of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance that he will accept us and he will know us and he will love us. That we don't need to be hesitant anymore. We don't need to be concerned or worried anymore. We don't need to be distant from him. But we can draw near to him sincerely and fully assured. And did you notice the second half of the verse? It uses cleaning language. Did you see that? Cleansed and washed. It's the idea that actually we might be anxious that that we're a bit dirty, a bit grimy to be in the presence of someone as great as that. But all of that has been washed away. Pull into a lay-by for a moment and relax your minds. It reminded me immediately of reading this. I was rereading my notes this morning and it reminded me of it. It's six months ago when I was in the pool with Narish and and Vidya, back in November, a bit more than six months ago, back in November, because of his political connections, uh, we met with, unexpectedly, we met with the then foreign secretary-elect. He now is the foreign secretary of Nepal. And we met with him, and he's a, he was a really nice guy, educated in Oxford, pristine English, fantastic guy. He used to be the chief of police for Nepal before he stepped into politics and became the foreign minister. But I'd been up in Gimdi, the very rural place, for about four days. I hadn't washed, I hadn't showered, and shaved, and I'd only taken one change of shirt, which I'd put on two days ago. No other changes of clothes. 
I was astutely aware that I needed to have a wash as I met that great man. I was astutely aware of the aroma I could smell on myself, let alone how much his nostril hairs would pick out. But fair play to the guy, he did not flinch. There must have been a cloud around me of noxious fumes. And the guy didn't flinch. But I was hardly fully assured. Yeah? I was far from fully assured. And yet here we're told, actually, you can draw close to God, knowing that Jesus has washed you clean. All the dirt has gone. And your father's going to wrap his arms around you and say, be near. Some of us this morning have an incredibly clear sense of the power and awe and magnitude of God. And we worship him. But what we need to hear this morning is he is also your father, who through his son Jesus has made it possible for you to be embraced by him and close to him with no concerns or anxiety that you are not accepted. He is both king and father. And we need to see him as both. Second application, the second let us. Have a look at sentence 23, if you would. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Because Jesus is now the, the place, the new temple we meet with God, because he's now the person of God where we go to meet, available and accessible to everyone, the second application is we can hold fast, hold firm to the hope that we profess. We don't need to have a light hold on it. We don't need to hold on to that and something else as well, hedging our bets between the two. Because we know what Jesus has done, we can hold fully on to the hope that we have in him. This phrase, hold fast, is one of the favourite phrases that the Hebrews uses. It's used about five times through the book. Hold fast, hold firm. And a few months ago, when we first encountered it, I used the illustration when I was tubing in Hong Kong Harbour. Do some of you remember that illustration? I'll be impressed if you do. Some of you are nodding. That's, that's, that's marvellous that you listen. Extra roundy points. Brilliant, right? But tubing around Hong Kong, when you sit on one of those big inflatable tubes and you're pulled along by a jet boat in front, and me and I think it was probably a bunch of lads, because women wouldn't be as foolish as this, would they? were urging on the driver to crazier turns and jumps and spins and all the rest of it, daring him to throw us off, saying there's no chance you can throw us off. And the, the thing was coming out the water and crashing, going underwater. He took us over a ski slope jump on a tube, which I'm sure wouldn't meet any health and safety standards, and went over the top. And we were just holding onto this tube, yelling at each other, hold fast, hold fast, hold fast! Yeah ripped all the skin off the palm of my left hand. I had these calluses from rowing, and it caught on the calluses, and the whole palm of my hand and down my fingers got ripped off. It was really quite painful and awesome at the same time. Right? <laughs> but that's the meaning of this word. Hold fast! In fact, it says the hope we profess, but I think a better translation is, is profess, hold fast in the hope that we have. Say to one another, hold fast in the hope that we have. Go hold fast when the waves of life throw us over and, and smash us about and we feel like we're just going to be thrown off. Hold fast, we say to each other. But did you notice it says we can say it, look again with me at sentence 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, or let us profess hold unswervingly to the hope we have, because he who promised is faithful. Not because we're strong, 
but because God is faithful. So in my image, it's a little bit like, even as with all my might and determination, I'm holding on to that ring as the, the life buffets me back and forth. It's almost as God puts his mighty hands over mine and holds with me. Because he's faithful. Because he's a father now. And he's faithful. And it means that when it feels like my hands are going to let go, or in fact I choose to let go, his mighty hands are over the top of mine, going, I'll hold you fast. I'll hold you fast. So is that you? A reminder that you need to hold fast? A reminder that you need to urge others to hold fast? Or just a reminder that your father is faithful? Your father loves you so much. And he is strong. And his hands are over yours. Thirdly and finally, as we come into land, we can draw near now confidently. We can hold fast because he's faithful. Thirdly and finally, spur one another on. Encourage one another because Jesus is coming and we all want to finish this race. Look at sentence 24 and 25, the last let us. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day draws near. Do you see that? Let us now encourage and spur one another on. We can now say to each other, keep going, keep going, keep going. You've not gone the wrong way. Keep going, keep going. And spur one another on. As as I say, that's quite a, it's not a tender, gentle, keep going, keep going. It's a brutal, keep going, keep going. The closest analogy I think I've ever experienced came from my own father. I was reminded of it because of Dee and Danielle's epic 20, uh, 53.6 miles, yeah, 0.6 miles uh, that they ran last weekend. I did a similar length race. When I was about 21, um, slightly shorter, 52 miles uh, in a day. That was in a day. And uh, I got to about mile 48, and I was finished. I was finished. Just before the moment when I thought, I cannot go anymore, I thought my battery and my torch had gone. It was dark by this point. I thought my battery and my torch had gone. I put new batteries in. It was still just as bad. And I realized it was my eyes starting to fail. That's how physically finished I was. My eyes were starting not to work properly, and I couldn't see. I just had this kind of blurred tunnel vision. And I got to mile 48, where we hit the road again. Having come off a track, we hit the road for the last four miles. And my dad was there and my mum, actually, and a few others. And I'm running, I'm running like this. I'm, well, I'm not. I'm kind of, I don't know what I was doing. I was, there, there, there's a little video clip, and I'm, like, all over the road. Like, I must have run, actually, about twice as far. I'm just running like this, and there's dried vomit down this side of my mouth, and my eyes aren't working. I'm running, I'm running, I'm running like this, and the other end had gone at one point as well, so my shorts weren't too clean. And I'm running like this, and I collapse on the ground. And I was just on the ground. And if you're helped at all, you're disqualified. And my dad knew how important this race was to me. I'm collapsed on the ground, probably three miles left. And my dad just leant over and over, and he shouted, and he bellows. And I could see my mum crying about three, three metres behind her, uh, him. My mum was crying, like proper crying. And my dad just saying, get up! And if you can't run, walk! And I couldn't get up. He didn't touch me, because that would disqualify me. And he just said, more quietly, write down, and he said, crawl. And I crawled three miles. And my dad crawled three miles next to me to the finish line. That is what spur each other on means. It's not the dainty, gentle kind of, keep going, everything's all right. It's a, I know 
life sometimes is unbelievably brutal. That cancer takes those we love. A lady who I love very dearly this week died of a brain tumour, only diagnosed in December. She needed spurring on. She needed to crawl to the end. Dementia is horrendous. Those people need spurring on. This is not the little handshake and welcome to church and how are you doing, as important that is on a Sunday. This is crawling with bloodied knees and bloodied hands next to someone who needs you to crawl next to them to get them to the finish. And it's because Jesus is coming. He is running towards us at full pelt. He is coming. So what it says here, all the more as you see the day, the great finish line coming. Because, friends, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship with each other and with Jesus. So what's the application for you today? Since we have perfect access to God because of Jesus, do you need to draw near, confident that he's not just your king but your father? Do you need to hold fast, confident that he's faithful, his hands are over yours? Or do you need to realise you need to Meet with others to spur them on. Meet with others to spur them on. Come on! And I'll crawl the last length with you. Let's take a moment to pray, shall we?